to Campfire Fireside Chats. This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Welcome campers to this week's Fireside Chat. Just a couple of quick announcements, then we'll get to this week's guest. First off, we have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. Choose the tier that best suits your preference and get access to exclusive and discounted merch. Behind-the-scenes looks at the writing and editing process. Two weekly shows, we have Lights Out, an exploration of short horror, and Midweek Weird, a Fortean news update. And two monthly shows, Into Thin Air, The Missing 411 Files, and a series devoted to taking a deep look at the famed Men in Black. That's ten, count them, ten bonus episodes a month. In addition to all this, you get monthly swag bags. So what are you waiting for? Get over there. If you want the whole world to know that you're a diehard camper, go find the link in this episode's description, or go through our link tree, and go check out the merch store. Stickers, t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and fantastic designs by Jonathan Dodd and Easton Hawk await you. While you're in that link tree, tap on the Discord button and come join the community that we're building. Our Discord is a place where we can connect with all of you on a more personal level. So get over there and join the fun. All right. This week's guest is a writer, a classics professor, a top-tier researcher for small-town monsters, and the host of the Lore You Know podcast. As a fan of basically everything that she does, this was huge for me. But at the end of the day, she's just a brilliant and charming person with some very important insights about best practices for Fortean research. Also... It was just awesome to find someone willing to nerd out about the joys of research with me for like a half hour. So without further ado, Skinwalker colon Heather Mosier. All right, Heather Mosier. First off, welcome and thank you for um, for joining me. Yeah, th- thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I Right up top... Like, I just want to say that I always appreciate people who focus on, like, the value of folklore in the Fortean community. Like, I feel like that isn't... I mean, people, like, they refer to it a lot, but mm-hmm. I feel like the, the focus on the importance of folklore and how it's tied to pretty much every aspect of yeah. what our niche is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So... I I'm, I feel like you're the person or one of the people who brings that to like small town monsters, which I think mm-hmm. is huge in their success, really. Um, uh, yeah, and definitely huge in my enjoyment of it. So yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that for sure. Uh, thanks. Yeah, it's important. I mean, it. I don't know how we go into any of these stories without looking into the folklore because it influences the story itself it influences the people around the the story i mean it's just it's so intertwined i don't know how you'd separate the monsters from the folklore of the region so and i got a, a chance to really dive into that 
pretty deeply with uh, Ruguru, or Skinwalker, Colin Howell with Ruguru. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, that one, that was really, it was really awesome to go back through historical accounts of werewolves and watching how the folklore shifts and changes depending upon who is in the area, the different uh, groups that immigrated into the area, um, the people that were there to begin with, uh, and then see it all become a mixed, like just, I guess, a melting pot sort of uh, to what it is today. But you can still see hints. Like there were certain threads that I got so tickled that I could find different pieces that I could trace back so far. Just for, for whatever reason, we as humans would cling to certain aspects until we morph it into what it is today. Yeah. Yeah. Just, like, little pieces that get carried forward over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's always cool to, to see that. And then also to compare stuff. Um, I mean, my... We were talking about finishing up master's degrees earlier, and uh, my master's degree was in Latin literature. So looking back through just how things shape over time um, and how it influences influences people in history, which then influences things through today, but then seeing these repetitions that we as humans have over time. Was, um, my thesis dealt with the persecution of the Bacchic cult in 186 BCE and to go back through what was essentially like, I mean, what could be argued as the first written example of a, a witch hunt, a moral panic right. is what it is yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, but like the biggest moral panic, if you're not thinking about the satanic panic, when you think of moral panics, usually people think of the European witch trials. Um, but we keep doing this as humans. It's not, <laughs> it's not anything new. And so it's, it's neat in a way to see how, we go through all of this period of time, but there are certain elements as humans that we just never change for whatever reason. It just sticks with us. Yeah, the the moral panic thing is is interesting because it it is something that happens over and over and over again and throughout mm. human history. And like I guess you could say as like as we've gotten more civilized over time, it's kind of become like softer versions of a moral mm. panic, you know? Mm -hmm. But it it's that's still exactly what it is yeah yeah oh yeah yeah and, it, and the reasons that they come about are all the same i mean people just boiling it down to like the bare bones it, it seems to be when a group in power feels like their status is threatened and they kind of need a scapegoat for it um and so that gets thrown on to some other party that's usually innocuous but may have aspects of them that are kind of on the outskirts of what's normal. Um, right. So it's a little easier to pin stuff on them. <laughs> um, they can be easily misunderstood. And then you just whip the rest of the public up into a frenzy. And then you have yourself a moral panic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And all of a sudden the, the power is kind of reestablished. Um, and the people that were in power are happy again, I guess. Yeah, because then you're you're layering like moral superiority on top of the power you already have, right? Right, exactly. If you can, if you can turn that group into something evil and threatening, 
Yeah. And, you, yeah, that's just another way of asserting your dominance. Mm-hmm. You have to turn it into an us versus them situation. Right. So. I mean, I was going to bring it up. You brought it up first, but like as a <laughs> classics professor. Yeah. Like you, you teach about like Roman and Greek history, right? Basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So do you feel like your professional and academic focus on history has like has influenced your perception of the things that you research for small town monsters? So one of the first, yeah, yeah, because stuff was like drilled into my head as far as as far as how to go about research for one, which I think has been invaluable. So uh, step one, primary sources, if you can get them, is all that's always important. Um, go to the primary sources first. From that point, then. I can look at what was going on at the time in, in that particular community in history, whatever, and how that may have influenced the primary source. All of that is important with any type of research, I think. Um, but when you get into folklore, if you can narrow it down, maybe that can have some sort of a, a factor on what was happening when that story came about. But um, another big thing that was drilled into my head and I think is highly important for any student of history. And then also extrapolating that onto what I do now with monsters and witnesses and and things like this, is that you cannot put your own thoughts onto these people. Like you can't, as a student of history, you can't, I mean, you can't say, yes, this they were all wrong and horrible people for this because you weren't living in that time. I mean, there are certain atrocities, obviously. Um, The Holocaust is inexcusable. But if we're looking at, like, the Romans and the way that they went about different aspects of life, we can say that they were misogynists or whatever. Okay, by our standards, yes. Um, By their standards, that's what it was. For better or worse, it's what it was. And so to fully understand them, you have to remove your your perception to understand them at the time and then fully gather that. And so I think that that is also valuable when looking into stuff for small town monsters, when it comes to the folklore or even witnesses, like you have to remove your judgment from it. Yeah. I don't judge people anyway, but if I did, (laughs) I mean, that's something that you'd have to switch off as a researcher. Yeah. And then just personal experiences beyond that. Once you have some personal experiences that are a little odd, then I don't know how you can rule out literally anything else that's odd. Um, Because if you experience this, then what's to say that that person didn't experience that? You kind of just got to shut off all that bias. And I learned that first from classics. Yeah. that. I mean, I feel like even in mainstream, I'll call it mainstream history, over the Mm -hmm. last... I don't know, let's say 15, 20 years, presentism has become like a huge issue. Yeah. Like it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. It's become more and more difficult. It seems for people to avoid it Mm -hmm. because there's so much like, there's so much like broadcasted morality now compared to say 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it, it can be a problem when you're studying history. Oh yeah. Like of any kind. Yeah. And it comes up in um, my students' essays. There's um, <clears throat> one of the final essays in the, in the Greek Achievement course. The students are asked to evaluate uh, 
Greek attitude, like ancient Greek attitude toward women, using three primary sources as your supporting evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, And then compare that to modern day women, like how women are treated in modern day society. And obviously the majority of them, this is an an entry level class, so it's not like been drilled in their heads yet anyway to remove themselves from all of this, but um, it is absolutely about how horrible they were um, and I mean they the things that were written down the one of the poems for an ex- I mean there is it's uh, the three primary sources that they're given kind of run the gamut but I mean we have Simonides and Morgus who uh, will call in the poem poem seven that they have to read okay. they go he explains the different types of women and he'll talk about them being like this dirty pig and a no good bitch that needs smacked in the mouth. I mean, all of this stuff, there's only one good woman and she's, she's a bee, like a worker bee, which he didn't understand how bees work. But you know, the worker bee in his mind was the woman, um, the only woman worth having. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's horrible. I get it. It's bad, (laughs) but, um, they'll use that to explain, you know, exactly how horrible they were. And then um, compare that to modern, which is what we're asking them to do. But the the trickiness gets into if if they decide for modern day society to use examples that aren't from our culture necessarily or their home culture, and they start like putting prejudice on other cultures outside of. Not that all of my students are U.S. based, but the majority of them that do this are and they'll just pick from other areas of the world that they don't know that much about and they start comparing it to the Greeks and I'm like you can't really do that it's not quite the same right but yeah it's hard to have them not mingle the two yeah I mean I feel like that's a challenge for for almost anyone especially someone who hasn't spent years you know training themselves to avoid that those pitfalls um, yeah. I mean, that really, those years of of training are kind of what I wanted to talk about. Like, you have, like, a serious academic background, like, that comes with, like, legit research chops. Like, <laughs> you have lots of experience researching. Yeah. Okay, so I'm curious about, like, the lessons you've learned about transferring those academic research practices to the work you do at at small town monsters yeah obviously you can't be quite as strict as if you were as you would be if you were writing you know your master's thesis like we talked about but like right what do you take and what do you leave behind basically or what (laughs) do you just learn from and and change to Um, fit your new situation yeah so when it comes to research for small town monsters the the things that i that i've kept from what i've learned again primary sources if i can find them um the the difference between the academic stuff okay the other thing that is really tough for me is that i have to find because another thing that was drilled into me is i want to find more than one source that mentions something I'm not talking about witness stories, but when we get into like folklore, right. I prefer that it not just be hearsay. Somebody's like, oh, I'm pretty sure that this at one point was synonymous with this. Like, I want to see that somewhere. 
and preferably see it two or three times um, from different authors that aren't tertiary, tertiary sources. Like I, yeah. you know, I want that. Um, so like when it came to, I keep, I'm going to keep going back to Ruguru because that's the one that I did so much depth of research on. Cause I got to write that one. Um, when I was looking at the area of Louisiana where we're talking about Ruguru being most prevalent, I wanted to go back through history books and see, okay, who immigrated in this area and at what point in time? All right, now, now that I know those people that are in there at this time, let's go back through the folklore of each place. But, you know, start what we know now and then just move backwards from there and then see if based on the time that I'm finding this folklore pick it like pick up in the 1800s or whatever where were those right. people at that time does it make sense that um, these people would be influenced by this tribe up in Canada you know like um, mm-hmm. all of this stuff but I it has to fit I can't just throw it together because you can't do that as an academic just throw stuff out and hope that yeah. it works like you have to have a way to back up your stuff. My biggest thing, and I told Seth this from the beginning, when it comes to anything with research wise, if I don't feel that I can fight somebody about it, like argue with somebody about it, I don't want to talk about it. Like I don't want to have it in a movie. I don't want to like, if I can't back it up, then it doesn't, it doesn't belong there. Um, It may be correct. It's just that I need to feel confident enough in it that I could just have a debate about it. Yeah, it's it's much more tempting when you're doing this stuff to kind of just fill in the blanks with things that make sense or that might make it, you know, a little spicier along the way, you know, which is something that you can't even begin to think about doing in academic writing. Right. Mm -hmm. Like everything you include has to be backed up. Oh, yeah. Fully. You've got to have the sources. And that's um, when I started writing, I wrote for a little while for um, for a couple years actually for Shannon LeGros Into the Fray Weird Writer blog mm-hmm. and also uh, I was a co-host for the Caribbean Library of War for a while and wrote blog posts there now the blog so for the Weird Writer stuff um, with both of those I still insisted on having footnotes <laughs> at the <Yeah>. end <laughs> because I wanted it to be like I didn't just make it up but also the, the bibliography is my favorite part of a book because then you can go back and find those primary sources yeah, and see where that stuff originated. And I want people to be able to, anything that I've written that's out there, be able to go back and see where I got it. And then if that leads them somewhere else, that's great. But, you know, I want them to have the ability to look at the same stuff I did. Yeah. And also as a reader, I appreciate that. I always appreciate that because awesome. it just gives me more stuff to go read. Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, I, I appreciate a good bibliography chain myself. Yeah. Like just going from one yeah. to the next. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and not, I mean, so for, for Shannon's stuff, I, I would put that, put that in there and have the footnotes. Um, and those were more, for Shannon, they were, I mean, they were a blog, so there was personal stuff to it, but it was more academic-ish. For the caravan... I wanted to just because the nature of that podcast is the idea that you're on this, you're on this wagon and it's like, uh, you're going through a forest and and people are coming up to the wagon and you're telling the stories and stuff. So then for that blog, 
my D&D DMing kicked in. Yeah. Where I'm like, okay, let's just go into this character role and set the stage, but still I'm going to give you footnotes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I, I wanted to show that I wasn't just making up a story, because th- that's where you get to play around in that kind of stuff. You can play around and make things flashier. Yeah. Um, but there's still a kernel of truth to it. Like, there's a root to it. Um, and so I, I'd still put footnotes in for that. But yeah, when we start a new project at STM, like, uh, I'm looking pretty heavily into some Alaska stuff, right? Right now, it's just the, uh, like, the logistics that I'm looking into. Haven't had a chance to dive too much into the, like, the academic stuff yet, the lore and the history. But when we started that in Seth throughout Alaska, the first thing I did was pick up a couple books in the office flip through the bibliography and I'm like okay I need to find this book this book this book because <laughs> clearly these are the ones that I need so that I know when it's time I have them yeah. um, and I can just grab them because I also like to hoard books oh, so yeah. um, and libraries are great but I also like to just have them here the books whenever I need them and not worry about how yeah. to return them so of course yeah. yeah and Alaska Alaska has some of the like deepest richest native mm-hmm. folklore anywhere mm-hmm. in North America. Like I'm I'm obsessed with a lot, especially the Tlingit tribe has incredible like their folklore mm-hmm. their folklore fascinates me. All the stuff with the Kashtaka yeah. and their um shamanic histories and like yeah. rituals. Man, it's I could read about that stuff all day. Yeah. All day. I'm excited to really get into that stuff. Because that's the other thing is that with we've got we've always got a lot of projects going at once um and they're all at different stages so then my my focus is different for each project um but there's always my like one of my favorite stages aside from when i get to actually talk to the witnesses themselves like get to to actually meet people um is when i get to dive into the the folklore and the history and stuff that's where it's go into like, research mode yeah because you yeah. can lose yourself in that for hours and that's yeah. so much fun <laughs> i think anyway like <laughs> you can tell whenever i'm in a re like i can't i mean i probably could i just don't know how to do it on this but like right now my tabs on this are only like six to six eight tabs open but when I'm in full research mode, there's three windows, and they all have, like, 20-some tabs. Uh, my computer will slow down, but whatever. I have to have all those tabs because I'm flipping between all of them. I'll take notes. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's... It's easy to, to sit down for 12 hours straight, like, and just eat in between or whatever um, and get all that because you can lose yourself. But, yeah, that's, that's the best part is when I can dive into that because then also you got the books... And then you have the online stuff. There's certain websites that are key. Um, if I get a chance to dive into like Ancestry.com for certain things, yeah, that's awesome too. Um, and I, I think that classics, it, well, one taught me how to research, but also the patience. Um, when I was doing, for, so for my undergrad, I was in the the honors college at the university. And in order to graduate with honors, you had to write a thesis. So I wrote an undergrad thesis and then the master's thesis a few years right. later. You didn't and just take the test? 
now I didn't just take a test because I'm like if I have to if I spent all this time on it I might as well have something to show for it at the end like so we'll have a book sort of yeah but um like for my for my undergrad I remember just going going in and finding these amazing websites that are still key if I send a student somewhere I mean you learn things as you go along like there are websites, um, the books, how to go through all of that. There was something else that I was going to say that totally just slipped out of my mind as I was talking. <laughs> it had to no. do with my undergrad, and I don't remember what it was. I, I know we were talking about what you, what research practices you took from academia, and what mm. you, you know, what Ooh. you left behind. And I think it's like it's pretty clear that you brought some of the, the. Yeah you know, academic rigor with you still mm. keep writing footnotes for everything. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And with, with my undergrad, what that allowed me to do uh, because of the nature of that thesis was <clears throat> for that, I looked at the memory of Julius Caesar and how that fluctuated over time from the moment, like when he was alive through the end of the empire and it changes it's it's amazing actually he's like deified and then by the end depending on who's in charge he's a villain like there's just a footnote but he's evil or whatever and um right just the nature of that thesis taught me when i'm reading something to think about what like extemporaneous influences might be happening at the time of writing um, which I mean sometimes that comes up in folklore as well but um, it is it is something to, to think about when you're looking at historical things and how stuff has been portrayed like how accurate is it actually or how much of it was a political ploy right. based on it's how all, it was recorded it's all about cultural context Right. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that's something that's ignored a lot. It's mm. like, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not like trying to like talk down about the, the community, but like, I feel like there's a, a distinct lack of like primary source location. There's a distinct lack of like proper source citation. They're mm. like, I feel like there's a lot of just like, they people will google and find one article and mm. then they'll rewrite that article for themselves mm. and just like and call it a day yeah you know yeah so with some of those things uh i've gone through when i do research and that's part of i guess being a researcher is you go through all of that all of the you can see where people have literally copied and pasted stuff oh yeah um, and then I'm like, I don't even know what the original source was because there's 25 websites that say the same thing and all came out yeah. around the same time. But there's, and not that all of them are, are great or anything, but every once in a while, it's, I mean, it's still worth sifting through those because sometimes you'll find something that maybe they didn't cite properly, but there's a name or there's a place or there's something that's uh, a deviant from what you've already read. Yeah. And you're like, okay, what is that? 
And then I can take that because I know how to research, take that and then figure that Chase out. It. Yeah. And yeah. so even with those, <laughs> no, there are like- I try to mine them, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> mine them for info. Um, but yeah, I don't know. And, and the other thing within this field that I think, I mean, there's distinct parts to play. Um, like, I think when you're gathering witness stories, um, aside from not being a jerk when you interview people, you don't really have to have any particular background. I think that maybe having a background could influence the way that you ask questions or maybe the questions that you may have, but mm-hmm. also experience can gather that when it comes to the witness stuff. But when it, like the lore and things like that, I mean, it's cool to, to be able to go back and, and trace that and not just do a cursory glance at it, but I guess that's up to, I mean, to each their own, I guess. If that's what they want to yeah. do, that's fine. I'll dig deeper if I have mm-hmm. to for something. Because I want to make, I also want to make sure that our stuff is legit. So I don't want, like, I would be devastated if somehow something gets into an SDM film, like research wise, that wasn't right. And it, it will probably happen at some point because I'll probably slip up somewhere or because I, <laughs> I, these are all realms that are new to me. I mean, these aren't classics. Like, classic stuff, whatever. I can find that, and it's not a problem. This is still a new world for me, relatively speaking. So there's going to be times where I have to say, especially when we get into, like, uh, the different Native American stuff. That's not my wheelhouse. Right. And I don't want to mess up something there or uh, misinterpret something or whatever. And so that, especially, I try to go through more than two or three sources just to try to make sure that I have at least done my due diligence with it before we put it in the movie. Um, I think that's one of the things that makes them, I mean, I don't want to come across like a fanboy, but like, that's what makes (laughs) them so good. You know what I mean? Because thank you. It's not just like a fly by night thrown together, like scary story. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, it's thoughtfully, it's like a thoughtfully built narrative from beginning to end and yeah i'm i just feel like there's like for this for for our podcast Mm -hmm. we release an episode every week like Mm -hmm. every week is a new subject yeah and the only the only way that was going to work was ryan and i alternate yep so (laughs) i was just going to say do you rotate who does the research (laughs) yes Mm -hmm. so um because there's no way even the even the most shallow topic we've ever done there's no way I would be comfortable doing that in a week. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just I, I feel like there's a there are a lot of people who do <laughs> do that. Like <laughs> well that's like um when we film monsteropolis episodes Mark Matsky is usually the one who's researched for that. Like, and that's not, that's obvious uh, for one. He'll come with his notebook and, and, and notes and articles and all that. Some of it I'm, I'm ready to, I could talk about because I've already done research on but Like the last episode of Monsteropolis that we recorded, I can't even remember what the topic was right now. I feel like, oh, it was UFOs of some sort. 
And wherever, I think it was around the Chestnut Ridge then. Uh, I have nothing on that. Like, I, that's not in my right. memory bank. And yeah. I, I knew the topic was coming, like, a few days ahead of time. I knew what we were going to, maybe a week or so. But I was doing other stuff, and I'm like, Mark's got it. So I'll just yeah. comment, like, on that. Like, this will, Mark will, Mark will, you know, get it for us for this, for this round. But if it were something that it was just on me, and, and, <laughs> and I was told, like, two days ahead of time, <clears throat> I would try to do it if I knew that, like, we needed it for STM. But yeah. I wouldn't sleep from that yeah. point until the recording. I've literally done that with things for STM where like the Seth has messaged me like the night before something. He's like, Oh, I just had a thought if we could cover this. And I'm like, yup. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, I'm not sleeping tonight because I want to make sure it's done right. And the only way that happens is if I put eight hours <laughs> into it. Um, and so I don't know. It's, you know, also the, the drive to, to make it as good as possible. And I don't think that you can do that without putting that level of research in there. It's just, um, I mean, you can put on a good show or whatever without it, but I like my, I wouldn't want to, yeah. other people can do whatever, but I can't do that. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I completely understand. I'm, I'm the same way. Like, Okay, yeah. so changing gears a little bit. <laughs> you you had what I'll say was a fantastic article in the first volume of the Feminine Macabre. Oh, thank you. Um, on the um on the the cursed stones in the Bellwitch Cave, right? Yeah. Yeah, From yeah. The Bellwitch Cave. Mm-hmm. And you didn't participate in volume 2, but are are we going to see you again in volume 3? Yes, you will see me in volume three. Yeah. Volume two, I missed the deadline. We were getting ready to, uh, well, other stuff had come up, but we were getting ready to leave around the deadline um, for Chicago for Lake Michigan Mothman. And I'm like, yeah, I can't focus on that and and this right now. Because even with the articles, it's the same thing. Like, I got to put in a lot of time um, and then verify stuff. So, yeah. But yeah, volume three it'll there's a the article's called facing the faceless um and it's gonna be it's just one piece of what i hope to be a larger project um where there are these uh like headless ghosts that there's a hypothesis of who it might be so the first thing i did because research is fun is find the headless ghost stories that i could attach a name to um through the articles or whatever that and then go back through the newspaper archives to find when that person died um so then once you find who that person actually was and an obituary or whatever a mention of a relative then you can hop on over to ancestry find them that way and hope that there's um more information there sometimes there is sometimes there isn't much but either way with this particular one um when I did go over to Ancestry, I found pictures. But also because research background, I wasn't just gonna take the pictures. Um, so I tracked down who owned the pictures and called her. She happens to live in Alaska. And I'm like, hey, I know this is gonna sound super weird. This is how I start so many conversations with people. 
Um, I know this is going to sound really weird, but I'm writing an article on headless ghosts and I see that you have pictures. Can I use them? And we went through, she told me more about that, that story, um, that had been relayed to her down through family. And then she's like, yeah, go ahead use the pictures. And so we were able to, you know, face the faceless, put a face to this headless ghost now, um, that otherwise would have just been lost. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited about it and, and hope to turn it into a larger project someday. Um, I've got a few on notes now. I just have to have the time to go go in and do the deep research. I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Thanks. For sure. Yeah, I think it comes out in April, the third one does. Yeah. So now, now I'm thinking maybe every odd one I'll try to get in if I can. Because then that gives me a couple years. (laughs) We'll see. Okay, so before we wrap up, I have two massively important questions for you. Alrighty. Okay. First off, is it Appalachian or Appalachian? Oh, boy. Alright, so here's the deal with this. (laughs) It depends on where you live. I hate the debate because... Where I grew up, which is technically Appalachia. I say Appalachia now so that I don't have to deal with the arguing. <laughs> um, <Sure>. But I, <laughs> where I grew up, we're part of it, and we say Appalachia. The problem is the majority of Appalachia says Appalachia, and they kind of denote outsiders by how they say it. Yeah. Um, so I had people, I've had people argue with me about whether I was even from the region because I said Appalachia. I'm like, fine, fine. I'll just start saying Appalachia then. If that makes you feel better, I'm yeah. still from the area. Like I can still talk about all of the problems that plague the area. Uh, my family's been here for generations, like um, in not just in the Ohio region, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Maryland, like all of that. Um, so like my roots are here, but I mean, if we want to get petty about a word, let's, it's fine. Uh, but (laughs) also really do want to get petty about that. They do. And it's very, it's, it's frustrating. I think it's silly, but also, um, Steve Stockton is a friend of mine. Um, he's from Tennessee and he told me that one of the areas near where he lives, they would say Appalachian with an N they throw an N in there and I've never heard that but in their hmm. area they'd say Appalachia I'm like okay whatever interesting but yeah the, I think this the saying that they try to say is it's Appalachia like I'll throw an apple at you if you don't say it right and I'm like okay whatever yeah. <laughs> okay second second super important question alright give us your leading theory on ghost lights oh oh man my leading theory shoot I don't I don't have a theory that's tough because that would require me to have more research done to have a better way to the problem is with the ghost light stuff is that I've this is where I would prefer to think that it's something supernatural I think that probably more likely there's a mix of things that are happening with some of them it's probably an atmosphere an atmospheric thing with some 
uh, situations, an electrical thing with another, because there's been talks about them being like on railroad, you know, around railroads and stuff. Yeah. Um, but also, I have seen some, and I don't think, like, they weren't near railroad tracks, they weren't near power source, um, and the weather was just, I mean, it was clear. Like, there was nothing odd happening. I wasn't near a swamp or anything like that. Yeah. Um, or things that you see indoors. There's been, like, spook lights or whatever that can be seen indoors. And those ones, I would prefer to think are supernatural because that's fun. Um, so I don't have a leading theory on it. I, I don't know. I've seen that's, some. That's fair. But- I, I fully accept I don't know as an answer. Yeah, good, good, because yeah. that's what I got. I got. I don't know. Okay. I, I have to do more research first before I feel comfortable. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And I also kind of enjoy. I don't know as an answer. I feel like mm-hmm. people run from that a lot. In yeah, in our in our niche, they like try. They mm-hmm. I don't know. People feel like they have to come up with some theory for everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I just kind of enjoy the mystery of it. So, oh yeah. If we never exactly. figure out what spook lights are, I'll, I'm okay with that. Yeah, well, and I don't know if we could ever fully understand them anyway because of the different ways in which they show up. So, you know, if we go with, like, Ruth Ann Music talking about one of my favorite stories about a spook light where it's a a blue flame that shows up. Like, they take different shapes. And to have a distinct, like, flame shape or some people talk about a lantern or seeing a lantern swinging. Like, Mm -hmm. that's so cool. Can we focus on that? like that's the cool stuff for me like I'd rather not and and even with like you know people have asked what do you think people are seeing I don't know what they're seeing but they're seeing something or they think they're seeing something and it it mattered to them and it caused a reaction of some sort so let's focus on that why did that stick with them like (laughs) um I have have you ever heard um, Matthew Shang from Mothboys podcast? Have you ever heard his Spooklight story? You know what? <clears throat> I probably have, but I don't recall it right now. What's his Spooklight story? I'm sorry, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 a wild story. I wonder because I remember the first time I saw Matt Shang was in. Um, on the trail of UFOs, the first season. He's in there. I just remember seeing him, but I don't remember what he talked about. I wonder if that was part of it. Because that was it, it might, might have been in the Brown Mountain Lights episode too. It might I'll have to been. go back and check now. I'll check it out. Okay. Well, yeah. Heather, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, like, thanks for asking me. Yeah, of course. Um we I'd love to have you back sometime to talk about like your history, your paranormal history. With yeah. like ghost hunting and, and personal experiences. Heck that would, yeah. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Anytime. I'm here. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Every one of you, stop what you're doing and go support Heather in everything she does. Follow her on Instagram at Pagan Historian. Go subscribe to The Lore You Know on your favorite podcatcher. And follow Small Town Monsters on every platform you can think of. And check out the episode description for all relevant links. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. 
We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. And if you want more, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. It's there you will find bonus content, behind the scenes, or just keeping up on our day to day, and maybe some swag along the way. It is our way to show thanks for your support and do everything we can to provide you with as much content as possible. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. With that said, we want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials at campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And lastly, we do have our merch store. You can find the link available on all of our social media or via our link tree. Show your support. Buy a shirt. Buy a sticker. Buy a blanket. Buy a pillow. Anything that you want to wrap Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. And that's it. Until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird. And trust in the unknown. unknown.